When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Boogaloo. I'm so excited about this chapter and my guest, who really is the perfect person to help me cover this chapter, it is Kavita Mudan-Finn. Kavita has taught in a number of places, including MIT. She taught a class at Game of Thrones on MIT. She's got a book out about queens of the 15th century, so she's an expert on the War of the Roses. And she's written specifically on Game of Thrones and Cersei in particular. She's got a book coming out in 2022 called An Introduction to Global Medievalism in Popular Culture, which I am absolutely going to read as soon as it's out. Today we are covering the famous conversation between Ned and Cersei in the Godswood, where we hear the titular phrase, Game of Thrones, on Cersei's lips. Steve and I cover... Unbowed, unbent, unbroken. Without further ado, here is Dr. Kavita Mudan Finn. Kavita, I feel like this book gives us very, very little of Cersei's interior. Very little. And we will get POV chapters from her later in later books. Mm -hmm. But in this book, this, you know, the latter half of this one little chapter is the closest we get to. Cersei talking about her own intentions, what mm-hmm. motivates her. And of course, this is all filtered through Ned's point of view. Yeah. Um, but it's a it's a tiny little glimpse into who the person I think really is Ned's true nemesis in this book. But of course, Ned Ned can't see much beyond his his own limited field of vision. And so we don't learn a lot about Cersei. But we do learn a little bit about her in this chapter. Yes. Yeah, I think, I mean, honestly, this scene was the scene that really made me interested in Cersei way back in 2002 when I first read this book. I Because I had come to this book series through the Wars of the Roses. As soon as I saw Cersei, as soon as Cersei was introduced to the narrative, I immediately thought, oh, um, she's meant to be an analog. And I actually didn't think of Margaret of Anjou initially. I had thought of uh, the other queen who came immediately after Margaret of Anjou, Elizabeth Woodville. Um, and the reason why, the particular reason why um, Elizabeth Woodville came to mind is because um, the way that Cersei's family is set up, uh, House Lannister, and the mm-hmm. way that Robert Baratheon is set up at the very beginning of A Game of Thrones as the party king. Right. He's sort of this, this binge sure. drinker, alcoholic, yeah. womanizer, all of these things. Um, he is clearly very much an analog for uh, the English King Edward IV, yeah. who yeah. 
started off his reign as this eight, 19 year old wunderkind. He was mm-hmm. a, he was an incredible battle commander. He won battle after battle after battle, just absolute cut a swath through his enemies, took the throne age 19, avenged the death of his father in battle, avenged the death of his brother in battle, supposedly according to several different chroniclers. Um, he was incredibly handsome, very charismatic, was supposed to marry a French princess, uh. Uh, but met Elizabeth Woodville on a street uh, next to uh, next to a road in Northamptonshire, reportedly just completely fell head over heels for her. And after a variety of in-between things, he did end up marrying her. And that led to a recommencement of the Wars of the Roses. Interesting. <laughs> so, uh, so initially, when I was first reading this book, I thought, oh, she's Elizabeth Woodville. But then we get to this. And of course, there's the incest reveal in Bram's chapter. And I'm, I, I'm continuing. It's like, okay, this, this woman's really awful. What is going on? And then there's the scene where Robert slaps her. And right. it's public. It's in the middle of the, the banquet after the hand's tourney. He's not supposed to be doing that. Um, and this scene kind of comes after that. And she still has, like, I think she still has the bruise and she makes reference to it and Ned makes reference to it. Right. Um, and Cersei kind of pins him and, and, and confirms a lot of his prior suspicions that Robert is not the man that he remembers. Ned is, ha- Ned is already having all of these doubts about Robert. And he gives Cersei this chance that ends up being fatal to him, right. not because he necessarily cares about her, but because he does not want any more children to die. I don't know that That's Ned necessarily right. cares very yeah, much about Cersei. Absolutely. Okay, let's jump in on the chapter. I'll read a, uh, my synopsis of it. Sure. No, I'm, I'm glad we're already there. That's exactly where I wanted to go with this conversation. So here's my synopsis. Ned is discussing his broken leg with Pycelle. It seems that the bone is knitting, albeit painful. Pycelle shares the contents of Tywin's letter to Cersei. Lord Lannister is angry over Ned's decision to bring Gregor Clegane to justice. Ned imagines that the Archmaester is parodying Cersei to him. Baelish visits with news of Robert's hunt. The two discuss the Hound and his possible reaction to his brother's supposed fate. Ned's thoughts turn to the death of two Targaryen children after Robert's rebellion. Ned worries about what will happen to Cersei once Robert knows the truth. In an effort to save them, Ned arranges to meet Cersei in the Fog Godswood. The two talk over Robert's physical abuse. Then the conversation turns to her relationship with Jamie. Ned's suspicions are true. Cersei confirms that all of her children were fathered by her brother. Cersei attempts to bring Ned into the conspiracy, but Ned instructs her to leave town and leave Westeros with her family. Cersei tells him that if you play the Game of Thrones, you either win or you die. So, Kavita, would you like to talk about a character, a plot point, a theme, or shall you and I climb the ladder of chaos? You know, I had like I have a bunch of characters and themes and stuff, but let's climb the ladder of chaos and see what all happens. All right, then. All right, excellent. You go first. <laughs> all right. So, uh, one thing that had struck me when I most when I read the not the most recent reread, but the, the reread before that when I was rereading it for teaching it mm. was um, that Ned is incredibly sleep deprived during this chapter. Right. Um, because I remember also when uh, the first season of Game of Thrones aired on HBO, there was a yeah. lot of talk about how 
stupid Ned was, how right. foolishly he behaved. This guy should have known better. He trusted too easily. Cersei just walked right over him. You think he just needs better sleep? I, I'm. That's part of the problem, I think. Um, <laughs> spoken, but... spoken by a mother who knows <laughs> from pain. Yeah, like sleep deprivation is real, and and if you're not getting proper sleep, your decision-making suffers. (laughs) I pointed this out to my students, and they rolled their eyes at me. (laughs) Ned is actually a genius. If only he could get eight hours of rest, he would just be (laughs) thinking circles around everyone. Well, I, I wouldn't it. quite go that far. He did. I mean, one of the things that happens in this chapter is he finally solves the murder of John Aaron. What uh-huh. sort of? He thinks he solved the murder of John Aaron. Uh-huh. Uh, he it turns out he did not, in fact, solve it at all. Um, no. <laughs> but uh, he thinks he solved the murder of John Aaron. He at least finds out potentially why John Aaron went down. Um, but uh, this does not actually solve any of his problems. In fact, it creates a whole series of new problems for yeah. him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but he, but the, the fact is also on top of all of these other problems that he has been having, he is also not just sleep deprived, but on opiates. Right. Yes. Oh, you're so right about this. Yeah. He's on like the Westerosi version of morphine. This is decisions seem questionable. I feel like we need to remember this. All right. Now, wait. Okay. He is, that is the case in this chapter. He decides Instead of taking more milk of the poppy, mm-hmm. he's just going to get drunk instead. So he's probably yep. got some opiates in his system. Oh, he probably does. Plus, he's got honey wine in the system. Plus, he doesn't have enough sleep. Mm-hmm. And I bet he's not eating properly either. Oh, gosh. That's great. <laughs> this this okay. man is not He is not in a good mental state. He is not in a good physical state. Uh-huh. But also, I mean, at the end of the day, Ned... Ned Stark is a man who wants to believe the best of people and he wants to do the right thing in a way that preserves as many lives as possible. Yeah. So when he's faced with this absolutely catastrophic revelation that the king's heirs are not his children, that his wife has been betraying him for their entire marriage, um, and that the and more importantly, from a political standpoint, that the succession is now deeply in question. Mm. Um, he needs to figure out what to do, and his first instinct is not, "I need to tell Robert so he can fix it, so he can bring justice yeah. to this situation," because Ned knows what Robert's justice looks like, and Robert's right. justice looks like dead kids. Yeah, and so his immediate, like, so I mean, I actually admire the instinct that he has, which is, I don't want any more dead kids. Like I am done with dead children. Uh, What I want is to save as many people as possible. And unfortunately in doing that, he seals his own doom. Right. I think, all right. So what was interesting to me about this read that I had never noticed before is after Littlefinger leaves, he's sort of, he curses and he's really lamenting that he has no one in the city he can trust. Mm-hmm. And he's kind of running through the Rolodex in his mind. He's thinking like, yeah, Varys, no, can't trust Varys. Pycelle, no, he's probably in the Lannisters' pockets. Um, I could ask Selmy, and this is what caught my attention. He's mm-hmm. like, I could ask Barristan Selmy, but he's old and rigid and will just tell me to do my duty. And the way that I read that was, 
Selmy is basically going to say, well, go tell Robert. That's your duty mm-hmm. as Hand of the King. Tell Robert. Yep. And Ned decides he doesn't want that advice, right? He, mm-hmm. he can already sort of imagine that advice. So he decides to take an alternative path. Instead yep. of like laying the truth at Robert's feet, which he, he does intend to do eventually, mm-hmm. he decides he's going to try to do this little intrigue back channel to try yep. to get Cersei out of the country and save her children. So he is actually trying to play the Game of Thrones. He is. And he's doing it specifically because he thinks that the straight, you know, most honorable way forward may actually bring bloodshed. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes this is overlooked about Ned. I think he actually decided to do something that's a little bit not above board or not direct or maybe a less honorable yeah. path. Yeah. He has already seen how it goes if you try to take kind of the straightforward path, which is what happened when he was when he was a kid and Robert came to the throne in the first place. It's it's that image that he keeps coming back to of these two little children who got to who were just horrifically murdered, and he the, these images keep haunting him. And there's also the image that is not haunting him, but we know it's there on reread, which is of course Jon Snow. Because the if you read this with the knowledge that Ned's biggest secret, which is the one that he takes with him to his grave, involves saving his sister's Lyanna's son, that makes it all right. the more tragic, because. He, Ned has been keeping the secret for set for 15 years at this point um, that Liana had a son, that that son is Jon Snow. Um, mm-hmm. And he knows that the, if he lets any of that on to Robert, Robert's going to kill Jon Snow right. because he cannot stand the thought of any Targaryen being alive. And Robert's pride is not going to allow him to have these three children who Cersei claimed were his, but they're not. His pride's not going to let him uh, keep those children around, and yeah. if and Ned knows that if he's capable, that if Robert is capable of accepting the deaths of those of the two Targaryen children, and if he is capable of ordering the death of Daenerys, who is also a child, because it's worth remembering, Robert has already done that. He's already ordered uh, them to send a, an assassin mm-hmm. after Daenerys, who's thirteen. So ned knows that robert is absolutely 100 percent capable of killing children yeah you know i'm glad you brought up Jon snow because it was odd to me how often i was thinking about catelyn in this chapter Mm -hmm. um you know ned does think about her in the chapter Mm -hmm. and i'm just going to read this one little section so he's talking with cersei Mm -hmm. and he asks about bran he says my son bran To her credit, Cersei did not look away. He saw us. You love your children, do you not? Robert had asked him the very same question the morning of the melee. He gave her the same answer with all my heart. No less do I love mine. Ned thought, if it came to that, the life of some child I did not know against Rob, Sansa, and Arya, and Bran, and Rickon... What would I do? Even more so, what would Catelyn do? If it were John's life against the children of her body? He did not know. He prayed that he never would. Yeah. It's, that that little passage to me, I, I was thinking, Ned's been carrying this kind of worry. And he's trying to empathize with Cersei's predicament. He's thinking, well, actually, 
she's doing this to protect her children. Of course, I would, I might do something similar. And of course, I think Kat would do something similar. And then his mind turns to Jon Snow. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, so try this on for size, is Martin foreshadowing with this passage maybe sort of a Lady Stoneheart versus John showdown? I don't think so. I feel like it would be interesting thematically, but I don't know that it's geographically likely. I feel Hmm. that Lady Stoneheart's uh, Lady Stoneheart's arc is going to begin and end in the Riverlands. I don't think Kat is going back north. Even if John comes south, I don't think it's going to be till after that storyline has resolved. I don't think, I feel like Lady Stoneheart is going to get, that her storyline is going to come to an end, however that end happens. Um, I feel mm. like that's going to happen relatively early on in The Winds of Winter. Sure. Um, and that by the time John gets to the Trident, she won't be there anymore. Um, at least that's my kind of finger in the wind. It would be interesting yeah. to imagine. But uh, one of the other things that's interesting about A Game of Thrones is that I do not believe that um, Lady Stone, that that uh, Martin had uh, had decided to go the Lady Stoneheart way when he was writing A Game of Thrones because the... Um, the original outline of the book actually had Catelyn going uh, going back north. Um, huh. So yeah, I remember when I was uh, when I was teaching. Uh, one of the things that we looked at was uh, Martin's original pitch letter from 1993, um, and the pitch letter is like it's one of those weird things. Like people love to look at it and kind of try and figure out if they try and see if they can figure out where the where the uh, the eventual end game is going to be. Uh-huh. Um, but some of the stuff in there is just strange. Like I think. John and Arya ended up together, which is yeah. weird. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah, I remember that part of it. And like Cat and Bran go um, go up to the wall together, and I think Cat gets killed by the others, or like I don't remember, but it there there was a lot of very odd stuff in there. But which is all to say that I don't necessarily think that Martin put this in here with the intention of foreshadowing anything going on with Lady Stoneheart, because I don't think Lady Stoneheart had been, uh, was part of the narrative yet at this yeah. point. It's interesting to me the kinds of things that are refrains in this first book. Mm-hmm. So we have this constant refrain about, you know, Ben Jen's missing. Eventually you're going to have to pay off this question. You're going to answer it. We're going to have to find out what happened to him. Yeah. Yeah. What happened <laughs> I hope to Ben Jen? <laughs> the other thing that is refrained over and over again, at least in Ned's mind, but also from Catelyn's point of view, is this deep enmity between Lady Catelyn and John. And yeah. we don't find out till much, much later, you know, how wrong she is. But it is sort of this thing that Cersei brings up in this chapter. Like, hey, don't talk to me about honor. You're the one with a bastard. And so it, it's repeatedly brought up over and over and over that that Jon Snow is a bastard. And of course, mm-hmm. we know we think we know that George is going to pay that off by saying actually yeah. he's not. But I do wonder if there's going to be some reckoning with Catelyn. Anyway, just just kind of oh, things I, I think about. Wish like I one of the frustrating things, especially rereading these books. Um, like I, I read it and I just think, Ned, you should have just told her. <laughs> you should have told her. <laughs> like as 
Like, I know I can see it. It makes sense why he didn't, but he should have. Like, uh-huh. he especially, it should, like, maybe not at first. I can understand why he wasn't sure he didn't know her very well. But as uh-huh. they got closer, I feel like maybe five years in, he could have been like, so, by the way, <laughs> just so you know, <laughs> he's not actually my son. He's actually my nephew, but really, we can't talk about mm-hmm. it. We have to pretend he's my son. But you don't have to hate him because he's not actually my yeah. son. Like, I, I feel like there was a way he could have done that, but he didn't. Right. Um, yeah, it's it's one of those things. It's like Cat, Catelyn to me, especially Book Catelyn, she's such a politically minded person, specifically with regard to the South. Right. She's I think that her mind is on Southern politics. Yeah. And I think she would have understood if he'd explained it to her. Like if well, I was going to go a different direction. I would have been like, she's a doer. Like she might mm-hmm. act on that knowledge. You know, if she thinks you know something is to be done in the South, she might leverage John's true identity. I don't know. I mean, she might. Clearly... That that might have been why. That that could well have been why. Uh, why Ned decided not to tell her because he he didn't want to put her in a position where she found herself in a situation where she might be tempted to leverage that information. Uh Uh Uh, Maybe, maybe he, maybe it is because he knows her so well. Cause I mean, if you look at someone like, for instance, Tyrion, and I think Catelyn uh, shares a a certain number of these characteristics. um, But if you look at someone like Tyrion, if you give him information, it doesn't matter why. And it doesn't matter if when you gave him the information he cared or not, he's going to file it away. And right. later on, if he finds a use for it, it's not going to occur to him not sure. to use it. Right. Like information is some like knowledge is power. Tyrion very much right. operates on the knowledge is power model. And I think Catelyn operates that way as well. I guess the other part of it is that now I'm a student of ancient history. Mm-hmm. Well, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that there's this long-standing idea that a lord does not take advice from his wife and things go badly you you start taking mm-hmm. political counsel from your wife things are going to go wrong yeah well actually yes and no um there is there are a couple of very specific exceptions to that there's this idea of intercession so typically yes the the general consensus was um, if that men are not supposed to be taking taking advice from their wives, uh, wives are supposed to be in the domestic sphere, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But uh, one of the few exceptions to that was if you were a king and you had your and you found yourself in a situation where, say, a city had rebelled against you, and you had come down with fire and brimstone and all of that stuff, and you said, "Okay, I am going to punish everyone in this city." But then a couple of hours later, the king has had time to cool down and realizes, oh, wait, maybe I don't need to burn an entire city to the ground, but I also don't want to look weak and uh, look like I'm constantly changing my mind. Uh That is where you bring in the queen. Uh, The queen is able to come in, make a big show of kneeling down in front of the king and saying, please spare these people, give them mercy. (laughs) They haven't done anything wrong. And that allow that the the ceremony allows for the king to change his mind uh-huh. uh, without looking like he's changing his mind. He's just being a really nice husband and uh-huh. listening to his wife. So you're um, saying that Daenerys really needs a good queen. Is that is that what, yes. is that what I'm hearing? 
<laughs> yes, yes, that's exactly <laughs> what I'm saying. Yes, that's precisely what I'm saying. <laughs> oh, goodness. I wanted to ask you about, um, you know, the way this chapter begins, it, it's sort of Ned receiving some semblance of health care. <laughs> yeah. And I wonder if here's something I just absolutely have no idea about mm-hmm. is the, I mean, we, we give the idea that in the medieval period that doctors have like a few bag of tricks that they can use, but I'm my, wondering. So my, my husband was, did his, uh, did his undergrad in microbiology and he took a class called the history of American medicine uh-huh. And one thing that his professor apparently told him relatively early on was prior to the 20th century, you had a you had just as likely a chance of being killed by a doctor as being cured right. by one. Yeah, no, that's that's right. Yeah, there, there's there's actually a lot written about this in the ancient world, like, you know, that the doctors were thought of as torturers because you know, oh, just God, like yeah. commonly how because they were trying out different things and you know um, i mean they they just sort of go with whatever worked and sure. quite frankly whatever worked might have been just as much luck as right. anything else so here's my question would someone like ned stark receive better treatment than someone who you know commoner living in a local village oh that's or, hard or would like because... the doctors be like eh they 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 kind of suck across the board I would say latter. I would say the latter because the someone who is living kind of outside of a city, uh-huh. uh, there are certain types of like there. There's just certain problems they wouldn't have. Like you would not be dealing with the same level of like uh, drinking what like uh, unclean sure. drinking water, close living conditions, the spread of disease. You would not be dealing with a lot of the same issues. And also there is a long and uh, very complicated history of folk medicine. And in so many cases, folk medicine was often more effective than whatever it was that the official doctors were doing. And depending on what you were looking for, especially for stuff like uh, like uh, midwives and, uh, and childbirth mm. um, and what were generally typical, what were generally regarded as women's ailments, those were almost exclusively dealt with uh, through unofficial channels. Um, unless you were getting up into the really, really, really high social statuses when women were actually being treated by official doctors in as much as that was good or bad. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're going out in, in if, if you're going out into the country, and even if you were sort of kind of mid-grade nobility, if you were out on your estates in the country and you weren't in the city, you would get treated by a midwife. Interesting. Um, yeah. So, I mean, Pycelle's answer to Ned's situation is like, uh, hey, man, the pain's probably good. So that's good. Good, good. Glad I'm checking in on you. You're in pain. That sounds good. Now here's some uh, here's some opium, and uh, you know, call me in a week. I mean, I mean, it's not much. No, it's not. And I do believe, though, that in this particular case, this is not a doctor who's actually being very helpful. Um, and I think part of Pycelle's goal at this point is actually to keep Ned unconscious, mm. because if Ned is unconscious there's a lot of other stuff that could happen around him that could sort of continue to uh, to push him into an unfortunate position. Yeah, we see the like, same thing kind of happen with Tyrion after Blackwater, right? Yeah, that's exactly. Like it's uh one of the things that happens if uh if what you want is to keep someone out of the picture and they are already injured, 
Uh I mean, really, all you have to do is just keep feeding them, uh, keep feeding them opiates and they're not going anywhere. And I think Ned sees through some of that. Yes, Um, yes, he does. uh, So so give Ned credit, at least for that point. Um, Yeah, I think I mean, I as you as I said earlier, like I am of the opinion that he deserves significantly more credit than he gets. I don't think he's a mastermind necessarily, but uh, I do think I don't think that he's the sort of great lumbering bull in a china shop that uh, that a lot of people seem to think he is. Yeah, I I agree with you on this one. I I argue this a lot, actually. Mm -hmm. I'm always kind of saying, like, how would you know, we have the benefit of hindsight. And of course, Ned. Things didn't turn out well with Ned, so we can sort of be geniuses because we can look at Ned's narrative in retrospect. Yeah. Um, but every now and again, I kind of lapse and I say, ah, this idiot. <laughs> yeah, every now and again, it's like, oh, no, dude, you shouldn't have done that. <laughs> like, um, no, what he ought to have done is gotten his kids out ASAP. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. Uh, like shouldn't have just wait, like shouldn't have even waited. He should have just been like, OK, we're packing you up. You're going home. Right. And once you are out of the city, then I will deal with all of this. Uh huh. Were you, are you surprised at I mean, you you first read this in what, 2002, right? So it's 2002. It's yep. Hard, it's Undergrad. probably hard to remember what surprised <laughs> you and what, what didn't. Mm-hmm. But are you surprised that Cersei was so forthright? Yes. I mean, she just, there's no, she does not flinch. She's got no sense of shame. She even hints that she was responsible for Bran's fall in this chapter. Yes. She does not explicitly admit to it, but yeah, she absolutely, she's like, he saw us. She gives a reason for why he fell without specifically saying, yep, I was the one who did it or Janie was the one who did it. Like, I think Ned is able to read between the lines and go, okay, well, obviously JD was the one who did it. Yeah. Because he knows what Janie is capable of. But yeah, I mean, I found it very interesting. And I do remember being surprised um, when I first read it. And, uh, and this was really what kind of made me particularly interested in Cersei on my first read was, yeah. oh, I did not expect her to react this way. Now, going back to it on reread, particularly... Um, having read a lot of the supplementary stuff, the history, the world books, that kind of thing. Cersei's attitude, while I 100% do not condone it, Mm. um, I can see where she gets it from. Because if you Mm. look at Cersei's childhood, uh, she grew up, first of all, like she was in Casterly Rock until her mother died. Her mother and her father were first cousins. And when she came to court, it was the Targaryens who were still in charge and the king was married to his sister. So she would have been seeing a royal ideal, right? She would have been seeing like that would have been her first impression of what, what royalty looks like, what a king and queen look like. That's right. And if what she's seeing, there are two people who are very obviously related to each other, who are very obviously siblings and she's already got this kind of weird codependent relationship with Jamie, which we know that she already has because she she describes it as having been there ever since they were born. It's like uh, at um, she says, uh, since we were children together and why not? The Targaryens wed brother to sister for 300 years to keep the bloodlines pure. And Jamie and I are more than brother and sister. We are one person in two bodies. We That's shared right. a womb together. 
He came into this world holding my foot, our old Meister said. So she's already got this incredibly twisted codependent relationship with her brother. And if you add to it this kind of very early idea, this would have come to this would have, this would have been something that was an impression that was made on her when she was like eight, nine, ten years old. Where it's not clear what uh, I'm. I'm tra- I don't remember exactly when it was that Tywin brought her to court, but mm-hmm. it, she was still relatively young when it happened. Well, even and this is uh, admittedly this is my head canon talking here, mm-hmm. but let's imagine that she has an education. Along the same lines that Sansa does, mm-hmm. where she has this woman of the faith teaching her Targaryen history. Yeah. You know, so if, you're, if she's learning Targaryen history from a person, you know, that represents, you know, the faith of the seven. Mm-hmm. And she's learning about these great yeah, heroic if she, if she's learning figures. Jaharis and Alisane. That's right. And idealizing yeah. that whole history. You know, mm-hmm. you can kind of see that sense of morality forming. Yeah. Uh, or or maybe not morality as much as normalcy. Yeah. So social acceptance. It was it was socially acceptable, at least within very specific parameters. Right. And if you add to that this kind of this relationship that she's already got with Jamie and you add to that the fact that the Lannisters very much consider themselves to be like apart mm-hmm. from the rest of Westeros, very much the same way that the Targaryens do. Um, it's not a surprise that like when you think about it and all, with all of that context, I think her attitude becomes a lot less surprising. Let me read this last paragraph. Mm-hmm. The queen stood. And what about my wrath, Lord Stark? She asked softly. Her eyes searched his face. You should have taken the realm for yourself. It was there for the taking. Jamie told me how you found him on the Iron Throne the day that King's Landing fell, and you made him yield it up. That was your moment. All you needed to do was climb those steps and sit. Such a sad mistake. I've made more mistakes than you can possibly imagine, Ned said, but that was not one of them. Oh, but it was, my lord, Cersei insisted. When you play the Game of Thrones... You win or you die. There is no middle ground. I have a question about this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've we've heard that story before about, you know, Ned finding Jamie sitting on the throne. Actually, I have two questions about this. The first is that, you know, Cersei is criticizing Ned and saying this was such a bad mistake. It was yours. It was yours for the taking. Mm-hmm. You could have taken the realm. But isn't she also criticizing Jamie in this moment as well? I mean, yes. A li- I mean, I mean, we were just talking about how the, the fact that she has this ideal of what royalty looks like. And yes. she sort of patterned her own life after these Targaryens. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't she think that this is her moment as well? Like Jamie botched this moment? Yes. Yeah, and some like she was like she was not physically there. She was all the way in Casterly Rock when this happened. But yeah, I'm sure that uh, that there was some part of Cersei who's like, "Oh, Jamie, you could have taken the throne yourself, and then you could have, yeah. and I could have been your queen, and it would have been exact." Like, what's uh-huh. interesting is that we find out in A Feast for Crows that uh, Tywin had told had planned for Cersei to marry Rhaegar Targaryen, the last uh-huh. Targaryen prince, and. If, and this was, of course, assuming that Rhaegar's wife, Elia Martell, um, 
died in childbirth, which Tywin had expected her to do. But he had also kept as a backup, if that marriage didn't work out, uh, Rhaegar's younger brother, Viserys, who we do meet in uh, A Game of Thrones. So Tywin had this idea that Cersei was going to marry into the royal family one way or the other. Did anyone actually expect Jaime to take the throne? I don't think so. Um, I don't know that even Cersei would have necessarily expected that because Jamie by that point was a member of the Kingsguard. So I don't necessarily know that. Uh, I'm not sure. It's really hard to say because Cersei, when this was happening, Cersei would have been 15, 15 yeah, years and, old. And that means that Jamie was about 15. Yeah. Jamie and Cersei were both 15 at the time of Robert's rebellion. And uh, so like 16, I think, would be the oldest that, uh, that Jamie would have been um, at the end of Robert's Rebellion when he kills, uh, when he kills Ares and becomes the Kingslayer. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't actually know what Cersei thought about Jamie killing Ares. We never actually get that in her thoughts. We do not get much about Ares at all, which is interesting, given that he would have been a really important figure in Cersei's early life because hmm. she was at court with her father. Her father was Hand of the King. And there is also one little snippet that we get from Jamie's POV. Uh, Cersei was instrumental in getting him named to the King's Guard, which implies that she talked to the king and convinced the king to do it. Or that she was in in some way involved in that uh, that decision-making process. It's not clear to me how. It's not clear to me what she did or what she didn't do. But that is interesting, I think, in its own way. Um, It is interesting. When she says, you know, we are very much the same person. We have two bodies, but we're the same person. Yeah. I kind of get the sense that when she says that, she's like, Jamie is sort of an extension of my body. Like yeah. I'm the brains of this operation and yep. every now and again <laughs> I need him to act to act on my behalf but I do get I do get that sense that yes. she views Jamie in that way. Yes, she absolutely views Jamie as an extension of herself. She also views her children as extensions of herself. Yeah. Right. Um like she says that she loves them and I think that she believes that but her concept of sort of maternal love is smothering like Mm. it's uh she is very she very much sees her children as extensions of herself she expects them to do exactly what she wants them to do that's partly why it's so disturbing to her when joffrey um starts to kind of move out of her control um and when he starts to behave in ways that she doesn't necessarily want him to behave i think that that's partly why she gets why she starts to feel nervous about him while she starts she's not really sure what to do it's not necessarily that she disapproves of what he's doing it's that he's doing it without consulting her right she's she's lost control yeah she's lost control of him i think is the bigger problem it's not so much that joffrey is doing things that she disagrees with Okay, so notable introductions in this chapter. We hear about the Wind Witch, which is the the ship that's supposed to take away Arya and Sansa. Mm-hmm. Um, the, I think this is the first time we hear uh, a, this phrase, a roach in the rushes. Littlefinger says it, and I think that's sort of an analog to sort of a fly on the wall. Yeah, fly on the wall, yep. 
And I, I love that little turn of phrase. I thought, oh, that's that's a that's a nice little detail there. Yeah. Um, no notable departures, differences. I think that there's a few things you could call about out about Ned's conversation with Littlefinger, but the difference between the show and the books that most interested me was Cersei talking about her abortion. Yes. Because it comes up in the show in a much different way. It does. She does not. It's not an abortion in the show. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. She's talking with Kat. This is early on. This might have been like, yeah, it's like episode the second or third or episode. Something. Yeah. Yeah. And she basically says, hey, you know what? I had a stillborn uh, son once and I was mm-hmm. I was broken hearted. And um, and, you know, Kat was like, I never heard of this. And that's not in the books at all. But it did make no. me think of that conversation with Catelyn here. Yes. Maybe maybe Cersei is talking about this but putting a spin on it in order to mm-hmm. sort of ingratiate herself yeah. with Kat. That would not surprise me if uh, if that was sort of the implication. But also the other thing that the show added later on was that one brief scene between Cersei and Robert. I don't remember what episode it was in, but it was like somewhere mid-season, like episode five or six or something like that. It was before everything went down. Um, there was this scene between Cersei and Robert. I know which scene you're talking about. It's such a great scene. It's really the only scene where Robert and Cersei actually like interact laugh together, right? Yeah. We haven't had a real fight in nine years. Backstabbing doesn't prepare you for a fight, and that's all the realm is now. Backstabbing and scheming and arse licking and money grubbing. Sometimes I don't know what holds it together. Our marriage. So here we sit, 17 years later, holding it all together. Don't you get tired? Every day. How long can hate hold a thing together? Well, 17 years is quite a long time. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And you get this brief glimpse of the kind of relationship that they might have had if the two Uh of them had actually been able to communicate with each other. Uh, But they, they, it never works out. And we don't get that in the book at all. Um, In fact, in the book, one of the things that, uh, that we get is repeated confirmation that their marriage was in fact abusive. Um, Sure. Like I could not picture the Robert and Cersei of the book having that conversation. Like, I don't think I could picture that because he is so much more violent towards her in the book. Well, um, yes, he, he, he is absolutely is more violent. And she's throwing like goblets at him and like chipping his yeah. teeth and whatnot. But there is this sense in which Robert is in the books is completely baffled by her. He like he has yes. no idea how to relate to her. Cersei is a very rare thing in Robert's world. A woman who does not want him. <laughs> And the irony is that the other woman who did not want Robert was Liana. Uh, (laughs) Interesting. And of course, Robert does not know that. Robert does not, like, Ned Uh, has tried to tell Robert that, and Robert does not believe him. 
Interesting. But that's the thing. It's like this weird parallel, the one extant parallel between Cersei Lannister and Lyanna Stark. Yeah, the woman he most loves and the women he most hates, right? Yep. Neither of them want him. And <laughs> like all that, because Robert has kind of built his life around being uh-huh. the the uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll guy. Like he... Right. He loves. He loves. Uh, he loves to drink. He loves to eat. He loves to fight, and he loves to sleep with women. Yeah. And I, I, there is an obvious additional word, but I don't know how explicit you're allowed to be on this podcast, so I will leave that out. Um, but uh, he, so he loves to do all of those things. And as far as we can tell, um, with the exception of Cersei, Robert is not one of those guys who gets off on non-consensual sex, which unfortunately is prevalent in these books. Um, but instead, he he just wants to have a good time. Um, yeah. But that is not something that Cersei is ever going to give him. And we do not get this in A Game of Thrones. We do not get this until A Feast for Crows when we actually get Cersei's POV. Uh, but Cersei does actually talk about how her marriage to Robert was abusive, uh, like yeah. he was physically abusive toward her. Yes, she did fight back. Uh, but when you think about how Robert is described as like seven feet tall, huge, built like a basically built like a football player. Right. Um, you can just imagine like, oh, that that would not have been like even if she is fighting back, uh, what what's that going to get her? Yeah. Interesting. So I think you in this scene, you get the you get little glimpses of, um, OK, maybe like Cersei Lannister is awful. I don't think we're going I don't think it's going to change anybody's opinion on whether Cersei Lannister is an awful person. But I think what we get in this scene is nuance. We get, we get nuance. Uh, and even Ned is trying to see the world from her. Yeah. perspective, Right. Which is sort of invites us as the reader to do that. Because, I mean, Ned has already been on this journey. Like, from the second he sees Robert in Winterfell, Ned is forced into this position where he's acknowledging that his best friend is not the man he remembers. Uh And this is kind of the nail in the coffin for that. um, Because he realizes not only is Robert capable of killing 13-year-old Daenerys, he is also apparently very, very capable of beating his wife. Um, And... This is not something that Ned approves of, clearly. Right. Like, this is not the way that Ned lives his life, and this is not who Ned wants his best friend to be. Well, more than um, anything, and I think that this actually does round us out a little bit here to this mm-hmm. chapter, is that more than anything, we have been told in no uncertain terms several times in this book that Ned has a red line that he won't cross. Yeah. And the red line is bringing children into the violence of politics. Yes. That that is is so distasteful to him that he's willing to walk away from his oldest and best friend in order to put up that kind of stance. And so this meeting with Cersei is absolutely well-earned. This is absolutely Mm -hmm. in keeping with Ned's character. Yes. He will not cross that line even to the point that, you know, even if it's sort of this back channel intrigue, which is a little bit distasteful to him, mm-hmm. it's so much better than the alternative. And of course, we know oh, yeah. this is this is what gets Ned killed. I know. And it's awful. It's at, like it's he is absolutely doing the right thing here. He is like I think <laughs> yes. like and that was one of the things that frustrated me when uh, when they 
when the show was airing and people were going on about how stupid Ned is. I was like, no, he's not stupid. He's just a good guy who is dealing with awful people. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Like, uh. he is, like, did Ned, like, I, and, and to be fair, like, Ned made mistakes. He should have had more, he should have come with an army. He should not have uh-huh. shown up with, like, 40 men. Like, that's, that, that, that was a mistake. He did not... Like there are a lot of things he could have done Uh, better. And a number of them, we actually see Tyrion doing better in uh, A Clash of Kings. But even Tyrion isn't able to hold on to this position. Like that is how, um, that is how dangerous it is to be hand of the king. Uh (laughs) Well, I do want to call out, we we probably need to wrap up here, but let me just call this, this out and get your impression on this. Mm -hmm. Ned Walks into that godswood or limps into that godswood, yeah, thinking that he's armed with the truth, right? So he has yeah. come prepared to have a truth fight, yes. And what he is not expecting is for Cersei also to come armed with the truth, that's right, and, and to give as good as she gets, look him right in the eye, speak truthfully, and do and and just not flinch. Because she views the truth with a different interpretation. And Ned has not even imagined, it's not even occurred to him that Cersei might do that. That Cersei might like confess, but have a good reason for everything Mm -hmm. that she's done. Yeah. That's something that it just hasn't crossed his mind at all. Yeah. Like it's not a good reason. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He thinks it's his armor. It ends up. Yeah really really coming back to bite him yeah it is it is really difficult because like you're you're right he does not he expects cersei to lie he expects cersei to do what a lannister would do or coward Um, or like yeah yeah. it's true now i have to flee i mean that's not her that's absolutely not in her character to do that it is not no not a chance like i i am sure like he might have yeah i think he might have expected her to to try and defend herself, to try uh-huh. and um, to try and pretend that it didn't happen, to claim that these are Robert's kids. Uh, like, I- I'm sure he expected all kinds of things, like to threaten him or any, you know, mm-hmm. like, like my dad will find out about you or whatever. But instead, she's just like, no, it's true. Like, she, she just, she accepts it. And not only does she accept it, she ends up confirming a lot of his worst fears about Robert. And I think that's part yeah. of his, uh, that's part of what really throws him for a loop in this scene. It's not just that, uh, that Cersei is telling him the truth. It's that her truth is confirming what he had already feared. Yeah. And right. that she, and he, and he's starting to see her as a human being, which I think is also a little worrying to him because he was, it would be much easier if he could just look at her the way Robert does and say, oh, she's right. awful. She's frigid. She's whatever. Uh-huh. Um, it would be much easier for him to deal with this if uh, if he could be dispassionate, but he can't. Right, right. And he pities her. He does. He should be pitying himself. <laughs> I mean, I think he can pity her, too. I feel like that's one of the strengths of Ned's yeah. character is that he can pity Well, he, he at one point he actually says, I don't know which one of you I yeah. pity more. Right? Yeah. And, you know, she's like, keep your pity. I, uh, this is, that's yeah. not what's going to happen in this conversation, by the way. That's not. No. 
Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. We need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. And now Steve and I talk about unbowed, unbent, unbroken. Jorah finds out his father is dead. Jamie and Braun get into trouble in Dorne. Arya's learning to lie better. And yes... This is the episode with Sansa's wedding night. Here is comic Steve Osborne. Steve, what would be a video that the video is more memorable than the song? Um, maybe David Lee Roth, just a gigolo. I mean, David Lee Roth in anything. He's just such a goofy looking guy. Yeah. I mean, when it was, was it Panama where he's like riding the big inflatable microphone? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're talking high kicks. Flamboyantly heterosexual. <laughs> yeah, it's David Lee Roth. Flamboyantly heterosexual. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he was one of those guys where you're like, when you're listening to his voice, you think that this guy's this guy's gotta be a character. Right. And then you see him in person, and you're like, oh my God, I had no idea. <laughs> this guy's more than a character. He's, well, he's flamboyantly heterosexual. Yeah, he's he actually is like a character. Like he he looks like if you went to the opening of like a strip mall and they had the caricature artist there, and you say, "Draw me as a rock star," and then that image got off the page. <laughs> and just too much. Yeah, it's like, man, why is the why is the smile so big and the eyes so wide? No one, no one kicks like that. Leather chaps and a leopard vest—that's oh, just too much. Just, and then his little, like he does his little, like shoulder things where he would like, sh- not even a shimmy, but it was like it's as if he was leading a marching band, and he put the thumbs up near the, his chest and then just sort of worked his shoulders out. And it was just something so, so sexual about it. Without you being even a little bit arousing. And yet he seems like he's having so much fun. Yeah. Like I should be disturbed by this, but he's having so much fun. Yeah. And that's, I mean, you got to figure he had to be like awful to work with. Oh, absolutely. Like just a nightmare to work with. Like he'd probably just come in and just, just so showy. And the songwriting is <laughs> like, I should howl right here. Like, all right, fucking, you're going to do it anyway. Now, Let's say that this guy was like your sandwich artist. <laughs> would you put up with it? Yeah, you know, you would because you just get, you know, it's, you, you would probably be one of those things where like, I don't know why you always go back when you know he's working. I mean, it's, it's always going to be too much mayonnaise. Always. <laughs> it's just, 
it, and you just he's know it. spinning he's slapping meat yeah. down while he, yeah, he does a full like, 360 yeah just just shredded lettuce everywhere see i think i would take it from my sandwich artist i don't think i would take it from my barista i'd be like man oh, just make that. the coffee yeah because usually if you're going to get coffee there's a you know it's like i mean as much as i love coffee it's the percentage of times that i go to get coffee that aren't that are more recreational as opposed to a necessity are much lower now here's what i would like everything's cool even keel get the coffee but as i'm taking the first sip he goes into his little scat talk <laughs> boozy boozy bop zitty yeah. bop <laughs> that's what i could get because i've got the sip you know yeah, you give one sip and you kind of give him a nod, like, oh, that's good. And he's like, I'm a lizzy billy, I'm a, I'm a lizzy billy, bop. Like, yeah, that would yeah, work. All right. <laughs> I'd be like, man, I'm going to tip that guy because he did not have to give that to me. Yeah. Or if every time he was grinding the beans, he made, he did that. Like, as soon as he goes and pushes the button, it's like, I'm a lizzy billy, And then he's, when he's done, say, bop. So it's accompanying the buzz. Yeah. The grinding noise also has the scat singing <laughs> over it. Yeah. yeah, I think I think that's also acceptable. Oh man. Well that you know, that leads us into our episode, Steve. All right, let me think. If you ever if you ever just decide to incorporate that into i don't know if you have like a catchphrase that you've ever used <laughs> um, i'm going to suggest that instead of a catchphrase if, if ever you're looking for one you just kind of do his little scat singing after each joke <laughs> that's their cue to laugh <laughs> a little catchphrase that just kind of cues them into as like, opposed to the jump kick <laughs> just well i think that the jump kick is only for callbacks that's right a roundhouse <laughs> to let them know that that was something that was from before <laughs> sure yeah. your foot is the arrow pointing them <laughs> back to the previous joke <laughs> steve this episode was worth it just for the line the the dwarf lives until we find a cock merchant <laughs> yeah exactly that's an incredible in fact it might have been the only redeeming part of this episode I, I don't know about that. I like this. I liked several parts of this episode, but I think this is interesting because we've had situations before where I really didn't like an episode. Yeah. And you were like, yeah, it was fine. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like you really didn't like this episode. Um, I, It felt very disjointed. Hmm. Um, I know the, the ending is particularly controversial. I did a little, little research the ending the sucks fact. i don't even want to talk about the ending the endings well but here here's the, it, but here. the ending angers me but i think if you sure. delete the ending you've got a pretty decent episode but maybe so, yeah, okay. i could be convinced otherwise i think it's okay uh yeah, because up until that part i was just sort of like i felt like i was just watching as opposed to being engaged in it mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. and then you know then it's really hard to then look back without the lens of the ending uh, somehow coloring, you know, your, you, you know, everything else. Right. But the, I think the ending is worth discussing because it's, I find it fascinating to one degree because I, because I thought about this a lot. We are used to. Well, before we go there. Okay. I do really want to come back to this line. <laughs> I mean, I think that almost anything 
could any any statement could be enhanced by the qualifier until we find a cock merchant. Cock merchant, yeah. yeah. Like like if you were doing fortune cookies, for instance. <laughs> you know. You know, Instead of adding the in bed. Take advantage of the next business opportunity until we find a cock merchant. I said, yeah, I got it. I like that. Well, and that is, I mean, that is an interest. Like, so that happens, right? So this becomes I, I think that might have been one of my issues is that I mean again, I don't know how this compares to books, and this is Game of Thrones. You've seen so the anything. t-shirts, right? The t-shirts, <laughs> the t-shirts say like I drink and know things, like Tyrion's right. got so you've seen that. Yeah, yeah. I really think that there's a merchandising opportunity here for just the dot 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 until we find a cock no that's fair like i mean that's like you know or you know don't wake me till i've had my or you know talk to me till i have my coffee or until we find a cock market. like i think that's a good mug or yeah <laughs> or just a, a mug that like when it gets hot that's when the qualifying statement comes up yeah because now you've got your coffee yeah <laughs> so it's, yeah so don't talk to me till i have my coffee and then you fill coffee and then it just hyper colors out yeah, which suggests a little coffee alone. <laughs> All right, good. let's talk about Sansa's wedding night. This is not going to be fun. Well, so so here's an interesting situation. We've got, like, we're so used to the big dramatic endings of these shows, and they mm-hmm. usually involve murder, uh, like a dramatic death. And here we have something we have, and, and so that changes the course of many people's lives. And here we have something that if you look at it just from it's either murder or it's like some sort of magical reveal or it's like someone's got a big army that they didn't have before. But we've gotten used to this big ending like the, you know, we don't always like usually it's episode nine, but there's there's the Joffrey, you know, happens. And then, you know, we have these little moments that where it's like, whoa, that's dramatic. And we had the whole thing with Barristan where we're like, meh. You know, and we were yeah, like, is yeah, that yeah. supposed to be the big ending? So then you look at this and say, well, this is one of those big endings. This, it's just not murder. It's not, you know, so, so I find that it, it's fascinating to me that like societally and as fans, you can kill a main character in a gruesome fashion mm-hmm. and you'll get a hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes. People will be upset. People will be you hmm. know, some somewhat polarized, but it won't necessarily have the same reflection into the critical response in fact it'll be considered bold and game of thrones still got it and so in this case we we have something that is completely jarring to a character that we have been tracking for a very long time yeah a character that we have developed a, a, an affection for right? right ah she's just in another bad spot again and then it comes to fruition everything that we've been like the tension that's been building she's been avoiding this kind of a moment pretty much her the entirety of this series and she's now been dodging it, bullets for sure right and then now it, it happens and it's it's so gut-wrenchingly off-putting that the, the critical response was very very negative and again i'm not saying yay this ending i'm saying i find it interesting that that we can watch you know catelyn stark get her throat opened up and people be like yeah. wow what a bold episode uh-huh. um and and part of it is i think because that's it right that's it for her 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 arc ends there um i mean there were people that didn't like that either but i here's the here's the difference between those two things i think this what happens to sansa is which is you know brutal rape that by the way i think that you see it through theon's 
facial expression, right? Right. I think at that point it cuts to audio and you're just seeing Theon's reaction to it. And I think sometimes that will be worse than actually seeing someone's throat open up. Right, right. Because it's your own imagination. But in addition to that, I think that Sansa's experience hits too close to home for some people. Sure. Like it's hard. It's actually hard to imagine someone cutting someone else's throat because it's something you've never really seen in real life before, never experienced anything remotely close to that. And there's a gore aspect to it that does feel yeah, yeah, yeah. Other, like fiction. Like the- yeah, it's a little, yeah, exactly. It's like I've seen this in a dozen horror movies. But what happens to Sansa just is going to hit re- way too close to home for a mm-hmm. lot. So it doesn't feel like fantasy anymore. It feels sure. like this is the kind of stuff that happens in the real world. And I don't want this in my fantasy narrative. What do you think? Yeah, no, I I agree. And I I think and again, I'm not advocating for this. I think this ending is problematic. But the thing is, it's also like, how do you I mean, this is an interesting corner that they've painted themselves. And my understanding is now this does in the book, it doesn't happen to Sansa, but it does happen. There is this type of scene that I from what I read that it's actually more graphic and Theon is involved. Yeah, Theon is involved. And it's you know it's not Sansa, but it what is one of Sansa's friends or something like that. Yeah, so so the experience is there, right? And you may not have the same. And again, I don't know how this character is built mm-hmm. up, so you may not have the same affinity form. So in terms of just like because the, there was a lot of criticism too from I think about the writers that this again I'm just reading you know mm-hmm. sort of postmortems that like oh here it is their brutality against women. It's like well it sounds like this you know they they've diverged from the text, but they they've still kept true to some of the some of it right and so this happens this is a thing it's almost impossible to have any kind of a sequence now that you've painted yourself in this stanza with ramsey corner where he mm-hmm. doesn't do something horrible i mean all right let, let's yeah. get out a different way they didn't have to paint themselves into a corner they really no. didn't have to they could i mean the the books kept sansa south and they and they really didn't create another character that character doesn't exist in this show's story so they made a choice Mm-hmm. to do this with Sansa and, and and this is not the first time they did it they make Danny's wedding night more violent than it was in the books yeah they made okay. Cersei's experience with Jamie more violent in the sept mm, okay and so it's like they they kind of have a track record for this and Got it. it's a choice that i think is unfortunate i think that we've seen so much other horrible stuff in this world specifically from this character well, and there's also the element of if you're trying to to make Ramsey unlikable, I, I I think you're good. Yeah, I do. You don't. It's not right. I mean, this goes to the it, this goes to the Joffrey the right. Joffrey uh, scene with the prostitutes, right? Like we didn't, you know, unnecessary. Like, lest, lest you forget that Joffrey's a monster. It's like ah, no, he's hideous. again. That was another thing that they added. They added the yeah. violence to the prostitutes. That right. So that's a good point. So I mean, I guess it is right for criticism. You know, so I get that, but I do, it is, but it, and it, and that's not even about me defending the scene. I just think it's it's an interesting mm-hmm. notion of what we allow uh, and what we think is okay. And she's gone through so much. Do we really need? You know what I mean? Like, there's a, there's a sense of like, who is this for? What character arc benefits from this, right? Because if you're going to tell me this is supposed to be something that's going to convert Theon, well, I'm not sure I want to sacrifice Sansa for Theon's journey. Yeah, you know what I mean. True. And you have to you have to you got to make this pay off. You know what I mean? And I don't think you can. 
What do you think about using a whip as a weapon? It seems like that should be your last resort, not your first option. It's almost like these, like in Dorne, maybe they only have three weapons. They yeah, have like I mean, a, a spear. They've got <laughs> knives. The third daughter was like, well, what? I, I can't just do what you do. I need a. I need something else. Yeah, they're just Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> yeah, this whole thing, man. It's like these daughters it's come like in. It's like the Hawkeye of these superhero daughters. It, it's just too... That, I mean, it doesn't... These are not getting better, these scenes with them. I mean, <laughs> wow. It is... It's almost as if the showrunners this season are like, we can get away with anything. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to be able to wield a whip. I don't know. I don't know what I, I would feel like do I would with hurt that myself. power. I feel like I would hurt myself. Oh, sure. Time. Sure. No, there's no question. that I've hit myself it. in the bridge of the nose with the yo-yo. What am I going to do with the whip? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. What, I don't know why I think that that's kind of a cool idea. But then you see it on screen and it's like, no. Yeah. Well, because yeah. a big, a big, sharp knife. That that actually seems a lot yeah. more effective than a whip. Well, a whip seems like she got in trouble, right? Like she, she, you know, give me your badge and your sword. You get this whip. That's what you get because, like, she, you know, she didn't follow police protocol or something. Not like you can be subtle with a whip. It just seems like there's a lot of opportunity for that to not go the way you want. I see professional fishermen hook their pants. <laughs> First of all, you can't conceal it, so everyone knows that you got a whip. And then you have to unfurl it and like do a little wind up with it. Yeah, there's a whole and it's so it's so showy. What was something about this episode that worked for you? I liked uh, I like a, a, a just a, a hall of faces. <laughs> so you like all of faces. Yeah, and I, it's interesting because this is a this is a, a subplot that we I think we talked about last time. Like I'm just. I'm willing to give it the benefit of the doubt. One, because, you know, again, I'm decided to be all in on Aria and it's, it's weird and it doesn't, and it's a slow burn. Mm -hmm. And so. Yeah. Well, she's kind of become an acolyte and she's supposed to live with this little, I don't know, life of servitude and silence most of the time. Right. So how are you going to make that exciting? Right. Right. And then I've been patient with some of those slow burns before. So I'm hoping to be rewarded in this. I do kind of like seeing how the whole thing works because now I can kind of see the bat cave like, oh, they so they, they bring people to this little temple who want euthanasia and they embalm these bodies and then they use some kind of magic to preserve the faces and then they and they face it up. Yeah, it's many faces. I like to see them dig a little bit deeper and show me a little bit more beyond the magic and i think maybe that's what the red god is lacking like right. like i don't know how any of this works i don't know how any of the sort of the lore fire god stuff magic works but it almost seems like with the faceless men they've got this little scientific method going on yeah and so and that's fine and again i don't know if if, if the ex- and sometimes the explanation makes it muddier um but i'm just seeing like the more the more that that onion those layers start to unpeel the I, the better it is for me. So that's probably why I liked it because I'm like, okay, I feel like we're getting somewhere. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure where we're getting, but at least we're getting somewhere because uh, I don't want it to become sort of a throwaway plot. And I don't believe that it could be. I, I'm kind of enjoying the religious 
zealotry takeover that's kind of happening and it, yes and it's it's really interesting that and i didn't think i was gonna like it i'll be honest i was kind of like what are we doing and then now i'm like "Ooh, this is kind of this is causing some serious complications well it also kind of shows you okay cersei now you have it the way you want it right because at the end of this episode marjorie's in jail tywin's not over her she doesn't have she doesn't have to contend with a small council. She sent them basically packing. Her son is really easy to manipulate. And basically, Cersei is all powerful in King's right. Landing, or at least she thinks she is, right? Well, and just like you had mentioned before, I think in the last episode or whatever is it, which probably is a little bit foreboding. <laughs> right <laughs> there's there's like no <laughs> momentum in westeros yeah it's, yeah things are going cersei's way so now you're waiting for the other shoot <laughs> exactly because it's like oh tywin's getting everything he wants i'll probably die while taking a dump i'll tell you something that worked for me uh so we both we both were unhappy with the ending we're not both not thrilled with dorn so i think that we've covered the things we didn't like right and you're actually convincing me now that we're having this conversation that that there is more to like in this episode. I think it's just so colored by the ending. And yeah, I think yeah, on. it's it's hard not to let the ending. Uh, but here's something else that I really liked. I like the way that Jorah finds out that his dad's died. Mm. Yeah, that was good. Stuff. I think that a a lesser dialogue, lesser writer would sort of hit you over the head with it, like. Right. Would say, What do you mean? My dad's dead, or you know, it would sort yeah, of any, yeah, it was done so subtly. And because you didn't have to, like, you know, hit it right on the nose, it allowed Jorah to kind of expressively play that scene with his face, yeah. And it totally, and in fact, it felt more authentic because there wasn't a lot of conversation, exactly. Exactly, Jorah's a, a character with a little bit more depth now. So I really like that. I like the way they do that. I do appreciate as well that we're seeing the the further unveiling of Littlefinger as somebody who's really got his hands in a lot. Oh, more. he's playing everyone against each other. Yeah, it's wild. I mean, it is a wild, uh, and I don't know if this is how he is in the book. Or well, not. yeah, that's right. He is this way in the book. And he's one of these characters that his superpower is he's always like two moves ahead of everyone else. And for whatever reason, his little plots and schemes seem to work out pretty well. Mm -hmm. But having his finger in so many different pies is also really dangerous, right? Right. Well, you also set up like now <laughs> when you have no true allegiance, you have nothing but authentic enemies. That's right. That's right. And it, all it takes is one of these people to be like, you know what? I don't believe any of this and I'm, right. I'm calling bullshit. I mean, he comes from nothing and now he's in a position to become warden of the North and warden of the North. Warden of the North. A side note. I just watched dark Knight rises again. I don't know the last time you've seen that, but it was, uh, it was jarring to see Littlefinger in the opening scene. Oh, is he in the opening scene? Yeah. In fact, he's the guy that's trying to find out about Bane on the plane. And so there's this moment where he doesn't have the accent, but like I, I I'm not looking at the screen for a second, and I hear something like, "Is he on the plane?" And I'm like, there's a little bit of that, <laughs> and I'm like, "What?" Well, I think that Bane stole all everyone's accent in that movie. 
That's right. Like it just and it's then like now you Bane's doing everyone's accent at once. He's even he's got a little <laughs> Michael Caine happening, but he's also That's got right. Littlefinger's accent. <laughs> There's a <laughs> and a very yeah great sequence when it, Christian Bale's Batman, who learned no lessons from The Dark Knight, is grabbing Bane. Where's the trigger? Where's the trigger? <laughs> you know what? If I ever have to watch that again, I'm absolutely going to use subtitles. Yeah, there's a, it's. Must be people of Gotham. <laughs> For this week's Bird's Eye View, I want to talk a little bit more about the two ways to create a night. And I have further help here from Elio Garcia, who pointed me to the So Spake Martin archive at westeros.org. This is Martin answering a question about knighting. So here's the question that was asked. Why did Lord Frey ask Rob to see about Olivar's knighting when he had more than enough anointed knights at his disposal to attend to the matter? Here is Martin's reply. Why should someone go to Harvard when they can get a degree from their local community college? There is great prestige in receiving your knighthood from a king, a prince, one of the king's guard, or other celebrated legendary knights. Getting knighted by a brother is like kissing your sister. We'll leave Jamie Lannister and the Targaryens out of that comparison. And getting dubbed by the local hedge knight is like graduating from Barber College. You get a sheepskin, maybe, but you don't try applying to law school. So in addition to some of what we uncovered last week, there's also prestige involved. To be knighted by a higher-ranked knight or a more celebrated knight or the king himself has a lot more prestige that goes with it. Now, I will add this. I know people who went to Harvard. They're not any more special than anyone else. So let's just tone that down just a little bit, George. And that is all for you.